Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your long-lost host, coming back after perhaps a year's hiatus from New Books in Psychoanalysis. Very happy to be here. Today, we will be speaking with Jacqueline Rose about her most recent publication, a book titled Mothers, an Essay on Love and Cruelty. Um, Before we begin the interview, let me introduce Jacqueline Rose to the um, listening audience. Um, To my mind, actually, Jacqueline Rose is perhaps uh, the foremost um, public intellectual utilizing psychoanalytic thinking, um, working and writing today. So it's a deep pleasure to have her here in New Books and Psychoanalysis, where we take seriously putting psychoanalytic ideas out into the broader um, uh, listening audience into the world, into the public sphere at large. Um, but Jacqueline Rose is um, a renowned feminist, literary, and cultural critic. Um, she's co-director uh, of the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities in England. She's co-founder of Independent Jewish Voices and a fellow of the British Academy. Rose is a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books and The Guardian. Um, and she has many, many uh, publications. I'm just looking at some here. I don't have a complete list, but just to give you the uh, the listening audience a sense um, on not being able to sleep, states of fantasy, why war, women in dark times, sexuality in the field of vision, the haunting of Sylvia Plath, and she also has written a novel titled Albertine. This uh, book we'll be speaking about today is published by, uh, let's see, 2018, it's Faber and Faber and... Yes, and so without further ado, Jacqueline, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Um, So I'm going to begin with a question that we ask every author, and the interview will move um, through its 50-minute hour from there. Um, And that question is, um, what prompted you, to the degree you can know what prompts you, (laughs) um, to write this book, Mothers, an Essay on Love and Cruelty? Well, in a way, it's a strange story because um, I think it's a subject I had been resisting writing about for a long time. And so, for example, when I wrote my book on Sylvia Plath uh, in the early 1990s and then looked back on it, I was very aware that the one aspect of her life and poetry I didn't even begin to address was a Plath as a mother. And it's very present in her poetry. And it's absolutely at the core of what has become one of my favorite works of hers, which is Three Women, which is the voices of three women in a maternity ward. And the difference and the proximity, the radical difference and the radical proximity of the experiences they go through. So I think it's something that had been shadowing me and I needed to think about it. But the actual precipitating factor was a classic in my life, which is what I call the London Review of Books superego. I regularly get asked to write things by the London Review of Books, everything from honor killing to suicide bombing to Marilyn Monroe. And I always start by saying no. I'm, I'm always crystal clear that the one thing they want me to write about is the one thing I know I don't want to write about. Then the superego kicks in and says, actually, this is something you really should be thinking about. And this is what happened with mothers. I was asked to write a review of a run of books that came out about four years ago, as another run has come out very recently. And it led me to just think about the strangeness and what felt indeed, hence the title of the book, the cruelty of so much thinking about mothers the expectations that are laid on them, the adulation and the hatred, which of course so often go together. And so when uh, the publishers Faber in London and Farah Strauss and Giroux in New York 
put their heads together and said, would you like to turn this into a book? I thought, yes, I would. I'm going to certainly going to give it a try. Well, it's, um, it is a tour de force. Um, I read it twice and on the second reading, I was uh, catapulted back to the very first book that I can recall reading, uh, about motherhood. And that would be Adrian Rich's, um, of Woman Born with the subtitle, uh, Motherhood as Experience and Institution. Um, I'm a huge fan of this book, and I was wanted to ask you, um, how do you see your book, what you've written in relationship to, um, to Rich's uh, publication, which you reference um, liberally throughout? I'm in her debt. I think we're all in her debt. I think it's a still unsurpassed book. And I think it's unsurpassed because it manages to do things which I try to do, which I know are close on incompatible, which is to lament the straight down the line material oppression of women as mothers in terms of labor, social support, emotional demand, practicalities. She manages to do all that and hold on at the same time to the immensely ambivalent psychic experience that any woman has who goes down the path of being a mother. Whereas classically, you take the line of arguing that mothers are oppressed and then a blank appears in the argument where her psychic experience can't be explored because you're worried but if you say anything other than totally positive things, affirmative things about her, you'll be being complicit with the hostility she rouses in the general culture. So I think it's very difficult to have a sort of dual-pronged approach as Adrian Rich was the first and one of the few to do, I think, which is to say this is an oppressive institution, but being a mother is complex and as complex and painful as it is exuberant, joyous, and fulfilling. And in fact, it can't be the second unless it knows it's also the first. Right, 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 right. There's that, that intense uh, way in which many women who are mothers are encouraged to split. Um, and it's an, either an all good or an all bad sort of secret. The secret, uh, the secret of the negative feelings, which on occasion, as an analyst, I get to hear. But in fact, I was listening today to a a patient of mine who is a, a mother of uh, one child. And she said, oh, I just, I had to go to the dentist and, and, and the, the nanny couldn't come. And then I, I, I never think to even ask my husband if he would come home from work and watch our child so I can make it to the dentist. What's wrong with me? Why, what's wrong with me that I don't even, I don't think to ask him. It's so stupid of me. Her attack on herself was very difficult um, to sit with, but also very common. This turning a situation that we could we could understand as institutionally arranged, as uh, politically arranged, and personalizing it and saying, this is just me. Uh, what's wrong with me? And so one of the things that, a question that arose from reading the book was, I wanted us to talk about, like, what makes seeing motherhood as an institution, right, as, as Rich put it, and as I think you also um, would see it as, an, as institutionalized in certain ways, because you have a chapter on history looking, has it always been this way? What makes seeing motherhood as an institution so, uh, so disturbing? What's, how do you, what can we say about the resistance to, to, to seeing it also that way? Well, I think your story of your patient is doubly chilling because um, she is not getting the support she needs. It is absolutely assumed that the man is not disturbed in his office. The father cannot be disturbed from his work. Um, and she is lamenting that. Why can't she get the support she needs? But she makes it her own fault. So she's doubly accusing herself in a way. So that is horrendous. You know, one wants her to just pick up the phone and scream at her husband down the phone or or join or join a women's group and think how can we persuade more gently the men in our lives to share the childcare and so on. Um, 
This, I think, has been a problem for a very, very long time. And I will speak to young women today who say feminism has succeeded in so many ways in terms of certain types of equality and freedom and choice. But in terms of the burden of domestic labor, it's hardly succeeded at all. And I'm inclined to think it's because there is a real psychic disparity between men and women on this one. If women are feeling drowned by the amount that is asked of them, they feel the experience of motherhood and or domestic labor as a set of additional burdens. It's one burden upon another. It's a surfeit. It's an excess. It's too much. If men are expected to participate in childcare and domestic work, they don't experience it as an excess. They experience it as a deficit. That's to say something is being taken away from them. You can call it masculinity, you can call it ego control, you can call it whatever you want. But I really have come to believe against my best impulses, which is that all these things can be negotiated um, or understood and partially dissolved, that there is a radical psychic difference around the problem of how we deal with care and how we deal with child care in particular. And I think, as Adrian Rich says, it is as if there is a basic a fundamental problem, which is that men cannot get over the fact that they were of woman born, uh, that there is something about that irreducible fact, even if it's artificial insemination by donor or IVF or all the different ways, or surrogacy, all the different ways now that a baby can be born. Nonetheless, I think there is something about that irreducible bodily provenance and the fatality and mortality and danger and risk to which it attests, since every baby is a miracle in terms of survival, that is for men impossible to, to countenance. And I think that plays a large part in women's failure over and over again to get the problems of mothering recognized as socially and institutionally organized in ways that could therefore be simply addressed and reorganized for the better. Um, there's also something which I discuss in the historical chapter you mentioned, which is that whenever anything seems to go wrong with the social arrangements of the time, women are first, mothers are first in line. I mean, Tony Blair, when he was elected first time as prime minister, Labour government, the first thing they proposed was to cut benefits to single mothers. And luckily, there was such an outcry that this so jarred with the socially progressive agenda on which he had been elected, he had to climb down. But then very recently, and you'll know this because you've read the book and the book starts with this, I find myself standing in a supermarket and there is one of our most right-wing newspapers, The Sun, and the headline is From Here to Maternity. And on the front is a picture of a black Nigerian woman with five babies. And the implication is that Britain is being swamped with mothers who are illegal migrants coming to give birth for free on the NHS at the cost of £350,000 a year, which is not an innocent number because 350 more than that, 350,000 or 3,500 3, each time a year. It was 350,000 that the Tory Brexit people said would come back to the NHS if we left the European Union. So they're playing. They are using mothers, migrants, black women, strangers to basically hoist off the anxiety about the social arrangements, which we are all complicit in. We're living in a society that has been scarred in the UK by austerity and is now being scarred by anti-migrant feeling. And it's as if somehow the Sun newspaper thought it could produce a headline. In fact, it did produce a headline which made mothers responsible for the whole damn thing. It's, it's incredible. So this is dispiriting, yeah. say the least. <laughs> say the least. <laughs> but it does suggest to me, and you're a psychoanalyst, so you'll know what I'm talking about, that... There is straight down the line social oppression and there's psychic perversity, which is sort of fueling it from underneath and which is harder to acknowledge or reach. Well, ab absolutely. And I think um, 
you know, the just the idea of a hatred of dependency, a hatred of dependency. What, you know, why are mothers subject to so much sadism, um, you know, casual sadism? And in fact, this today as I was preparing for the interview, I didn't have my rich um, of woman born uh, in my apartment and it was in my office. And I was like, well, what does rich say again about violence, trying to remember? And so I opened up, I went on Google and I was like, of woman born, violence. And what pops up, you know, you never know what's going to pop up there. What popped up was this strange range of things, which were um, a, a bunch of titles, articles, violence and women's psychological distress after birth. Giselle Bunchen, the model, her website is calling hospital births violence against women. Next article. First data on obstetric violence in Italy. Next article. Pregnant women are at increased risk of domestic violence. Next article, opinion, how terrible is it to be born a girl? Next article, men are not born violent. Anyway, I just, I was like, I was thrown into this, uh, you know, sort of this space where I thought like, oh my, my God, you know, like what is, there's, you know, the, 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 the violence, the rage, you know, that, that's aroused the vulnerability, um, you know, of, of the mother, um, of the mothering, um, uh, of, of the, of the woman who's mothering, it's, it was, it was, it blew my mind as I looked at that and I thought, wait a minute, you know, uh, it was a whole new thing, actually, assault and battery in the delivery room, obstetric violence. This was a whole new category. I was like, well, you didn't, you don't touch on that in the book, by the way. But I thought this is, this is a, this is a thing, you know, um, in an attempt to issue dependency. And, you know, in 19, actually 1996, um, Bill Clinton, put together a policy, you know, he and Tony Blair being friends, um, uh, called the Personal Responsibility Work Opportunities Reconciliation Act of 1996. And the very first... Yeah, Meetings was for everybody vulnerable. Absolutely. Right? The first sentence of it, though, was about privatization. Marriage is the foundation of a stable society. So on the flip side, Blair attacks a single mother, and Clinton proposes that if everyone gets married, social ills uh, will, will disappear. So, um, so we see. Well, if I can just respond to what you're the, that run of headlines, which are truly chilling. Um, one of the most shocking things I discovered in the course of researching the book was that statistic of fifty-four. The Human Rights Commission producing in the UK um, a statistic of fifty-four thousand women losing pregnant women losing their jobs every year for either being sacked or resigning for reasons of health anxiety. And um, there was also an article in the New York Times by somebody called Crystal, I can't remember his first name, where which the headline of was of which was uh, If America Loves Its Mums, Why Do We Let Them Die? And the rate of mothers dying in childbirth in the United States is the highest in the industrialized world. And the rate of infant mortality is also uh, high. And of course, it is double for black women and women of color than it is for whites. And in fact, the disparity is greater than it was in 1850, i.e. 15 years after the abolition of slavery. So we are on a downward path, and it's as if the so-called, I say so-called emancipation of women, not because I don't totally support the project, but because I don't think the reality has been achieved, boasted as it is. Um, it is as if the emancipation of women calls up a price of straight-down-the-line punishment in return. So in a way, these statistics are not surprising. What's extraordinary is that the bosses get away with it. So companies which will not hesitate to have uh, really good policies in place for disabled or injured workers have nothing in place for the protection of the pregnant woman and later a newborn child. And at that point, I think it is fair to start talking about the hatred of the pregnant and the nursing mother and it's only a small step from there to talk about the hatred of mothers, full stop. When David Cameron was prime minister, 
and came in on this so-called socially progressive, although economically right-wing, agenda, which means it wasn't progressive at all. Um, there was a real sense that the ills of British society were due to what was called the dependency culture, what are called the scroungers, the people who don't get up in the morning and go to work. In fact, Boris Johnson's given a speech fairly recently about how do people who get up for work every morning at 6.30, 7 o'clock feel about the unemployed people who are lying in bed all day. They shouldn't be allowed to live in certain areas of London as if those people were really delighted to be unemployed, right? As if it had nothing to do with their policies. So it's as if what is wrong with the social fabric is humanly constructed. It's to do with political decisions. It's to do with austerity. It's to do with the failure to respond to the 2008 financial crash. It's to do with Obama, forgive me, walking into his first Wall Street meeting and saying to the bankers, I'm on your side. He had a crashing majority. He could really have changed the way all that worked. He chose not to, right? So all these guys, right, business as usual, and it doesn't work. And who gets punished? The most vulnerable and especially the mothers. And I think there's a reason for that, which is the hatred of dependency um, is due to the fact that what the mother presents every human subject with is their vulnerability, is the fact of being born. And as the French psychoanalyst Lucie Rigari said, children never want to know about before they were born. Because if there was a time when they did not exist, then there might be another one. I, before you were born, brings you up in touch with the fact that one day you will die. So it's as if mothers are, because they're so close to the borders of life and death, it's as if they are being punished for not keeping in check something which the rest of the culture is simply trying to silence and then punish them for. Right, this sort of in, um, inability to tolerate, uh, you know, sort of disintegration and that things do come to an end and things do fall apart and that failure, which you write very um, very beautifully about, you, that failure, the importance of failure, mothers must fail. We know mothers must fail for there to be development, for there to be the capacity for maturation, the mother must fail. But when the mother fails as my patient was talking about today, and many patients speak about, I failed, I failed. You know, um, we don't seem to provide a structure that says, yes, of course you fail, and that actually is a good thing. Or, yes, you feel hatred uh, for your child. Do you? Well, well, very good, absolutely. You have to hate your child because, you know, they, they do hateful things. You know, I mean, to the degree that we hate hate, you have this fabulous chapter um, or uh, I guess it's a sort of sub, uh, sub, sub section of a chapter on hating. And, you know, you, you begin to think, well, what does hating hate do? Hating hate really puts you in the most terrible double bind because last time I checked, you don't get to choose how you feel. Um, but you know what I mean? <laughs> last time I checked on that, I was like, I didn't get to choose how I feel, but I can hate myself for hating. And then where does that where does that where does that Absolutely. put us? Um, that that's why I love Winnicott's wonderful 1949 article, Hate in the Countertransference, where he lists scandalously then, and I think scandalously now, the 14 reasons I think it is that a mother has to hate her baby, of which my favorite is she cannot eat him or have right. sex with him. <laughs> Um, which, you know, which, which is wonderful because it's not suggesting that mothers actually want to have sex with their babies, but it is saying that the intimacy and the eros and the touch and the smell and the bodily fluids and the liquids and the mess that pours out and into a baby violates boundaries in a way that makes incest look like a Sunday school tea party, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just... It's just extraordinary what being a mother and touching and holding a baby and trying to keep it clean uh, does to all your sense of propriety and normality and boundaries and health and all of that. It's, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. 
So I think what Winnicott is saying is that there's something radically impossible about what mothers have to do. And um, they're bound to be feeling the most complex range of psychic emotion as a consequence of that. They're not immune to the call to neatness and decorum. They're not immune to that. They see what's happening to the world they thought they'd built, you know, with their new furniture and their garden <laughs> or whatever. They, they see what's That's happening. Right. And there's no vocabulary right. for it. You know, there's no language for talking about the mess that children bring into your life in the most visceral sense of the term. Well, is it, do you think that, that there's, it, that there's no language or that the ears, the ear refuses to hear. I just, I'm recalling a friend years ago, her, her daughter's now, I think 17 or 18, but being, having, you know, her newborn and being in a diner in New York in the middle of the day and she stopped for a coffee and had to change her child's diapers and it was a mess and there was no changing room and she left some, you know, shit on the floor and she, and she called me hysterical and I didn't really understand what, what it was, but she was like, I just feel like I've just made a mess and everything's all over the place and people must have been looking at me. I was in the bathroom for so long. She was feeling a range of feelings from like shame, humiliation, excess, you know, she was overwhelmed by, of course, by smells, by vulnerability, but she was overwhelmed by a feeling, as I recall, mm-hmm. of shame, that somehow in the midst of all this mess, which is like inevitable, <laughs> you know, it's the inevitable shit mess, um, that she, that there was an, a veneer of shame added, a layer of that on top. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think, I think mothers are made to feel ashamed uh, as if they were personally responsible for the fact that babies do not obey the rules of decorum, which are drummed into human subjects in order for them to become so-called civilized people. And, of course, Freud, uh, one of his most famous essays, Civilized Sexual Morality and Modern Nervous Illness, is a stunning account of how the requirement of civilization renders people incompetent to fulfill its most basic demands. It produces sort of shaky, nervous, you know, castrated men and sexually frustrated, sexually ignorant women who are then somehow meant to marry each other and fulfill the norms of the culture. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very inadvertently funny piece of writing, right? So it's, just, I mean, one of the things I felt the more I read, the more I explored, the more I thought about this was that there are two very simple truths <laughs> about the world, which is that human subjects are complex and disordered and we are subjects of the unconscious uh, which is the place where that is most clearly stated in psychoanalysis with subjects of the unconscious. And the world is unjust and iniquitous and cruel. And it's as if mothers are meant to tidy up on both those facts. They're meant to make the world good, pure, innocent, and safe. Well, of course, the one, the two things that mothers know very, very fast is that both those things are a lie. That is to say, you can't make the world safe politically. You can make it more just, but it's an unjust world. And you can't, you can't uh, legislate for the contents of the human heart. You can't make people have the feelings, as you say, you don't get to choose what you feel. And I feel the demand on mothers to make those things okay, which never are. And then the fact that mothers are the first people to know that they're not okay. It's that combination of the demand and the knowledge of the mothers that it's fraudulent, which causes the ruckus against mothers. Because it's as if they have a secret knowledge, which is this is not working. This is impossible. This demand cannot be met. And your story of this woman in hysterics phoning you, you know, in in a state of obviously intense distress because the whole thing has fallen apart you know, in a public space. It's so eloquent. And one of the books I refer to in, in, in the book is Rachel Cusk's A Woman's Life. A woman, is it called A Woman's Life? Or A, a Working Woman's Life or A Woman's Work? I can't remember what it's called. Um, for which she, I mean, is a very brilliant but very negative book about the disaster as she experienced it of being a mother. She felt disenfranchised politically. She felt excluded socially. She felt trampled psychically. She felt a complete mess physically, right? And she just 
she doesn't let up. She just gives it to you. And, oh, she got into such trouble. She got into such trouble. But having said all of that, um, and it's as if strangely mothers are being asked to protect the world from the knowledge they have mm-hmm. by being Absolutely. mothers. And uh, one uh, a sentence I pulled out that you wrote in the book is, uh, the only way of soothing the world is to call up its demons. And I loved that idea that, you know, it's a very psychoanalytic idea that, you know, the worst thing that you imagine you could ever say, once you say it, um, things start to, you know, break open potentially um, for the good. And yet the demand that uh, mothers keep what mothers know out of the public sphere Mothers, uh, you also write, mothers who expose misfortune as uh, injustice struggle to be heard. No one wants to hear Cusk or, you know, the mothers of the disappeared. There's a way in which the political knowledge that mothers have, um, mothers end up, yet so it's completely, it's completely unwelcome. Um, uh, You know, there's a, I think only one woman in the uh, Congress that has ever been pregnant while serving here in this country, which I just read somewhere, it just jumped out at me. I was like, whoa, what did that, how was that body received um, in the, uh, in the, the halls of power? Um, and how telling it is, you know, that, that, that body has um, been, uh, been, been kept, uh, been kept out. Um, I think you, one of you, wasn't it Tammy? Dyson, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. I was trying to remember. I was like, recently put through the Senate yes. the right to bring her baby yes. into the Senate. Yes, yes. And interestingly, she's a quote unquote disabled woman. And this was her second child. And she got it through. And of course, it's front, it's front page news because the idea is so weird, which is why, by the way, you know, I find Sheryl Sandberg's lean-in philosophy so unhelpful because, you know, don't be afraid, go to your boss, tell him what you want. You know, the absolute assumption that, you know, mothers are going to want to go on working full-time, that they're somehow going to be able to manage to do everything and to, you know, it's the whole superwoman fantasy. All we play as far as I'm concerned. Um, but of course, you don't lean in in the sense that the one thing you don't do, unless you're Tammy Dackworth, is take your baby onto the Senate floor, right? It's assumed you will keep her at home as a guilty secret for which you alone are responsible. And that is so disenfranchising. It's, it's just... It makes it makes it it makes mothers very isolated. I think absolutely. And one of the um, subjects you take up in the book is can uh, can a mother um, uh, enter sort of the polis? You know, what does she do? Is she allowed there? And and the ways in which perhaps um, uh, I think Cusk refers to it as a defection. Right? That that when one becomes a mother, one defects from public life. And of all the people to defect from public life, it's in a way, I think you also suggest this, that the mother should be at sort of the center of public life um, rather than pushed to the margins um, as, uh, as, as mothers are. Um, and a, another question that you ask, which is key, is uh, what are we doing to mothers, this, these are your words, when we expect them to carry the burden of everything that is hardest to contemplate about our society and ourselves? I, it took me, I had to read that like 10 times to really let myself hear the question my own, I mean, I was you know, interested to discover my own resistance to thinking this through. What, do I don't, please don't denaturalize motherhood. Please, you know, keep it natural. Keep it outside of history. Keep it out, keep it in the forever pre-edible realm. Keep it forever inchoate. Keep it forever this fantasy that all my needs could be, you know, have a place where they could be met. Please don't attach it to the idea of an institution. It took, I mean, reading the book, I kept feeling the drift in myself. Um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to politicize this. And I love to, you know, I've been a feminist for, you know, since forever. But there's something about politicizing um, motherhood. 
Okay, now that's a very big challenge and a very, very important question because I would say pretty much everything I've ever tried to write has been trying to run some kind of a safety net between the trials of the mind and the trials of the world. Um, and I believe, and if I go on writing, it's because I still haven't worked it out and never will, that there is the most profound intimate relationship between the strangeness of the human heart and the iniquities of the world. And that somehow, you know, I mean, it's very transparent at the moment. I mean, the problem in, in America at the moment is a certain version of masculinity is ruling the house, right? Uh, call it Trump, call it Kavanaugh, doesn't matter what you call it. You know, it's very, very clear that the injustice of the world is linked to a certain brandished and branded version of masculinity but the but you can't you know so i my the aim i was setting myself and perhaps i should have said this right at the beginning when you asked me why i wrote the book was to see whether i could write a book in which the political stakes of being a mother and the most intimate psychic undreamt of aspects of being a mother could be on the same page the 50 4,000 sack pregnant women could be on the same pages as Sylvia Plath writing from the depths of her very tortured and inspirational heart. So I want to do both things. Um, and it's, and, and of course, once you go into it, and, and if you're a feminist of my generation, you're very aware of the failings of 70s and 80s feminism to really take on the questions of race and class and different sexualities, which have now come so much to the forefront. Once you start thinking about life and death for mothers in terms of race, you're somewhere completely different and you have to speak about it. So when Zoe Beard, Beard was disqualified as, I think it was Attorney General, because she'd been employing women for childcare. There was a big scandal about it, and she had to step down, and everybody commented on it, and but nobody commented on the carer. And most of the carers fulfilling those roles are women from Latin America who have left their children to go and work in New York for other mothers and look after their babies. And once you start looking at that, there is a history, and of course it's charted most brilliantly by Toni Morrison in Beloved, who kills the narrator, not the narrator, the chief character, kills her child rather than see her sold into slavery. Then you realize that the life and death issues we've been talking about as the precarity of living and giving birth to a human life are crisscrossed with the most cruel divisions of class, race, history, and so on. And just to go back to that statistic, which is, you know, it's, it's a hundred, it's double the number of infant mortality is double amongst black babies to white babies in a statistic that is worse than it was in 1850. Um, once you start thinking like that, then it started to feel actually oddly as if it was the same argument, which is that mothers are the place where the cruelest unfairnesses of our social arrangements are most transparent once you start looking that mothers are meant to smooth it all over and make it invisible and i think that's enough to drive anybody mad but mothers is the vanishing point of uh, of all of of so many conflicts and it's uh, it's a uh, really a cauldron a powder uh, you know a powder keg you refer to um uh, postnatal depression amongst uh, Black South African mothers, and it's it was extraordinarily painful to read um, that you know, these. If if you study, and I think certainly here in the states, um, I think in the correspondence you and I had, I might have mentioned an article by a woman named um, a journalist named Linda Villarosa, who writes for the New York Times, who did a massive expose on. Um, infant mortality rates amongst African-American women and came up with the most extraordinary piece of information. And I, I repeat this everywhere I can, so I'm going to repeat it here on New Books and Psychoanalysis. And, and she's also, a, she's a journalist and has a master's in public health. She's a black woman. She's a mother. She 
writes this incredible essay in which she views the, the statistics, um, public health statistics regarding black women and uh, why are their children dying in such high numbers? Oh, is it poverty? No, she says. Is it nutrition? No. Is it bad medical care? No, that's not actually not quite it. Is it genetics? She goes back to look at, you know, West Africa and she looks at, you know, women who were, you know, stolen and sold into slavery like her ancestor. No, no, there's no relationship. In fact, what she uncovers is that in this country, and you say it's worse than 1850, um, because of many, many, many more years of generations surviving racist onslaughts, there's an idea uh, public health uh, professor, I can't remember her name, at Michigan State comes up with, it's called weathering, that actually black women's bodies, no matter if they're well-fed, they're, you know, well-educated, uh, well-taken care of, wonderful care, that the body is refusing to carry children full-term in this country, mm. that it's a, that actually it's a real, a, a conversion disorder, a psychic revolt of sorts, um, which... Uh, it, it's so so much to so much to grapple with there because once she weeded out that all the normal terrifying. you know the left wing you know oh it's got to be poverty though it has to be nutrition no none of that Bia Rosa herself tells a story of I think her her child was was born four months early her body couldn't carry two terms she had the best of care so she she went after what what is happening so right there we see. Um, as you you point to sort of a nexus, you know, a place where everything comes together, and uh, you know what what is taking place that women's bodies, black women's bodies in America, are refusing to carry the term. Well, this is an extraordinary story because, of course, one of the things that is having a renaissance in science at the moment is neurogenetics and. The idea of transgenerational haunting, which is a psychoanalytic concept that actually came from the two Hungarian analysts, Nicholas Abraham and Maria Torok, in their book, Translators of the Shell and the Colonel, and the famous essay Notes on the Phantom, where they discovered that patients were living the unspoken traumas of the parental generation and acting it out and performing it. Well, now neuroscience is confirming what Freud was laughed at for which is a belief in the inheritance of acquired characteristics, which is that a traumatized person can literally generate inside their bodies the aftershock of what they've experienced in a way which will indeed ex affect um, the life expectancy of the unborn child. So another way of putting it much more simply is that the iniquities of our social arrangements get into the bloodstream a bit like it was in the papers here a couple of weeks ago that the pollution levels in London are scandalous. So the Marylebone Road, for example, uh, exceeded the annual pollution rate in the first week of January 2018. And now we're being told that the pollution is traveling through the placenta into the baby's body and is likely to produce seriously vulnerable children and asthmatic babies, and so on. So it's as if our sins come back to haunt us. The social sins are now going into the bloodstream. And one of the things I discuss in the book is the number of slave mothers. I mean, it wasn't just Margaret Garner who killed her baby, which is a story on which Beloved, of course, is based. But the stories I uncovered of mothers who killed their babies rather than have them be torn apart by slavery were more than one would like to imagine. So the terrible story you just told us seems to me to be in line with that. And it just, well, it just reinforces how responsible mothers are, how much they, or to put it another way, how much they carry the unconscious burdens of the nation and of the people. And, you know, this, this woman is suffering. She cannot get to the end of her term. She's got, you know, not so long ago, women were blamed when they didn't carry babies to term. It was believed that mothers suffocated their offspring in the womb. Um, so there's a very nasty little knot of, of unkind thoughts and harsher realities which are playing themselves out inside the woman in the story you just told us. I mean, I think, I think another 
place you go in the book is you take down cognitive behavioral therapy, right? And this really, a couple times, you really just go right for it, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, that's right, go ahead, say, call it call it out for, for what it is. When I think about this Linda Villarosa article and this idea of weathering, and I think, oh, how will this be blamed on these women? Well, why can't they psychically pull themselves up by their bootstraps and just get over this. You see, so there's there's a way in which, and what I love about your CBT. writing in, in this book, but in all of your books, is there's a, that there's that moment that sort of you 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 don't turn away from um, the power of you know the unconscious and unconscious conflicts. And you're such a some level, such an advocate, you know, for keeping um, keeping the unconscious in circulation in our thinking that, you know, we don't know all of who we are. But, you know, the, the worry when I read this article was, oh, these, these women will be blamed for not being mentally strong enough to be beyond this. Why? Because of the hatred of the unconscious. I mean, you know, attacks on the unconscious, it's like a human rights violation at this point. I mean, it's really, you know, it's really... Oh, I'm so into what you just said, because now you give me an idea, which I don't think I put it quite like this in the book, which is that the attack on the mother is the attack Absolutely. on the unconscious. Because the attack on the mother is the attack on everything that makes us feel vulnerable, confused, hateful, messy, you know, all the things that erupt in our dreams or in the privacy of our own mental space and so on. And to be a mother is to be in touch with that. Do you have a baby who's psyche is barely in place who's all over the place who loves and hates who you must you must allow to hate you must allow yourself to hate so there can be a psychic resilience and all these things can be survived so it's as if in a sense the reason why mothers are hated is because they scrape off the surface uh, the membrane between the ego and the unconscious and they lift the lid and let us all look inside Lacan famously said that the problem with the hysteric, or rather the truth of the hysteric, is that the membrane between the ego and the unconscious is so thin, you can see everything under the surface. And what you're making me think, Tracy, is that that's what mothers do. And that Yes, ab- absolutely. I think that that's, uh, it's, it's beautifully put. And uh, I, you know, when I was reading the book, I was like, what would, like, the, the, there's an immaturity um, to social policy, there's sort of the way in which in psychoanalysis you end up with, you know, things things move along well. You end up with a mature enough mind that can, you know, can know love and can know hate, can have, you know, can can suffer ambivalence and and keep on going. Um, but the immaturity of social policy, particularly as it pertains to women's bodies, is like there's, you know, there's we we don't want to know so much about a woman's body what it is to mother what it is to to contend with with porosity with boundarylessness with you know with all it's like it's like we if we could think that through sort of you know if we could it would let ourselves think that through um, we might be able to steal ourselves up and say, yes, okay, the hatred, repudiation of femininity is bedrock. What can we do to try and counter that tendency? Or in civilization as discontents, you know, like man is wolf to man who can deny. Okay, so we know this about ourselves. We need some help. What can we do to help ourselves to not reproduce this disaster of, you know, boundless, un, you know, unfettered aggression? We we need help to not and to not, uh, you know, castigate women for the fears that are aroused um, in the, you know, the pregnant woman. Yes, those fears will be aroused. Yes, they will be aroused. There's life. There's death. There's something that was before us. We hate it. We want to get rid of it. What do we do? Do we give into it? We create social policies that seem to indicate no awareness of unconscious conflict, uh, and it's it, it's maddening, you know. <laughs> like, well, I agree with you, and of course, I would say, and and the book is a cry from the heart. Um, one reviewer described it as a howl of rage. I prefer to think of it as a cry and a plea, which is just to get out there a different set of images of what it means to be a mother. And to shift the discourse, just to, you know, I'm an old fashioned feminist who believes in consciousness raising or unconsciousness <laughs> raising might be more appropriate in, the, in this case. But, you know, I just want us to speak and talk differently. And of course, one of the places you go for that is literary writing. So it's not for nothing, and we haven't got time to talk about it, but Elena Ferranti gets her own chapter. It's not for nothing that Edith Wharton makes a sudden and dramatic appearance that Simone de Beauvoir 
shows up and that uh, Sylvia Plath does. I mean, these are these are the women who've given me the counter images, the other ways of exploring and thinking about what it means to be a mother, and I love them for it. Yes, and we're going to have to bring the interview to a close. And I, before we um, sign off, I wanted to let listeners know that um, shortly we will have the pleasure of uh, Jacqueline Rose coming to um, New York City, and um, that'll be on Saturday, November the 17th, um, for a conference uh, sponsored by the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies titled Us, Them, and Hashtag Me Too, Psychoanalysis, Feminism, and the Legacy of History. Um, the conference will be at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Uh, if people are interested and want to come, 212-260-7050, call the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies or go to their website and um, you can um, uh, pursue um, registration. Um, Jacqueline will be joined uh, by uh, Dr. Adrian Harris, who is a, a leading relational psychoanalyst and theorist on gender uh, here in New York. Um, I will be moderating uh, the conversation between them in the afternoon, and it promises to be, uh, you know, uh, very, very, I keep thinking the song, isn't it, isn't it rich? Aren't we a pair? But isn't it rich? It promises to be a very rich day um, uh on subjects near and dear and, and pertinent that don't show any signs of, um, of going away as we uh, move this week into a vote perhaps on Kavanaugh. Um, it's um, it's going to be really quite incredible to have you here in New York um, with us to talk about what's, what's on, um, on so many of our minds. So thank you. Um, I thank you for uh, for being here. Um, I thank you for writing the book, uh, which I highly recommend, uh, to, you know, it's really, it's, and it's a book for the lay public, which is terrific that just interweaves so much psychoanalytic thought effortlessly. Um, uh, and, um, I just want to, this is a shout out to my girlfriends who are mothers, um, who have been reading this book also. Um, and to my own mother named Jacqueline, interestingly, Jacqueline spelled exactly the same way. And to my, uh, uh, to Penny, who has also mothered me into adulthood, she knows who she is. So, um, till, uh, till next time, um, this is Tracy Morgan, uh, your, um, your host, editor of New Books and Psychoanalysis. Happy to be back on the air and um, going to say all for now.